UCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is your host, Claudia Shambach with Ask a Leader. Today, we're going to talk about uh, several uh, subjects, including Medicare and uh, genocide. We'll be right back. This is a nice job to have, and I'm glad I've got it. Thank you for bearing with me. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents, the University of California Board of Regents. So today, uh, I wanted to properly introduce this uh, show on the it's the March 26, 2012 edition of uh, Ask a Leader. We're going to cover Medicare, the Medicare component of the Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act of 2010. That's really what the original act was called, folks. You don't even hear that anymore. It's already two years young, and it's already landed on the docket of the Supreme Court. This morning is the second of the three days of oral arguments having uh, it's just been heard. Uh, you probably tune in right after this program and find out what was hashed over today with the uh, individual mandate. The first part of the show, we'll hear from David Sign, the regional administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, which includes, of course, California as well as Arizona, uh, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories. And for the second half of the show, we, we diverge greatly into a, a soulful discussion with UCI political science professor Kristen Monroe about her recent book entitled Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide, Identity and Moral Choice. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this brief station break. Well, thank you for staying with us. Now, I want to bring on my first guest. Well, um, today on Ask a Leader, the, uh, we're mindful that the UCI's youthful demographic partakes in uh, spring break rituals. We're going to look at how the Patient Protection Act and 
Patient Protection and Affordable Health Care Act of 2010 affects Medicare. My first guest today is David Sign, the Regional Administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which, as I said earlier, includes California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii, and the Pacific Territories. Equipped with more than 30 years of federal experience in health and human services programs to the position, David Sign's accomplishments at Health and Human Services include work in Medicare health plan operations, financial management, and program integrity, information technology, and public affairs. He's particularly interested in advancing programs that improve care for those living with chronic diseases and in addressing disparities in health status that affect priority populations. We'll uh, get to him about to explain that a little bit, um, how he operationalizes that. His bachelor's degree is in philosophy and then an MBA in health administration from Temple University in Philadelphia. He comes to us today from San Francisco, where his administration is based. Welcome to Ask a Leader, David Zein. Thank you. We're glad to have you on as we're we're in the thick of this. I suppose you're sort of white knuckling the uh, the back and forth of the the oral arguments um, this week over the Affordable Health Care Act. Are you not? Well, I can't uh, deny that I'm taking great uh, fascination and personal interest in it, but uh, professionally. Um, our job is to um, carry out the laws that are on the books, and we don't, can't really afford the time to sit and think about what would happen if they weren't. So it's the law of the land, and we're working you know, full bore to uh, stand up the provisions of the law as they come along. Absolutely. And so, what, well, let's first talk about, um, for those of us, uh, some think, well, why do we worry about Medicare? I mean, I think we all should be concerned about it. Just sort of, I think of the analogy as, you know, uh, elementary students ought to wonder what's happening to the UC system, the California State University system, because they're headed there eventually. Same with the rest of us. If we're not Medicare beneficiaries now, we're going to be eventually, and we want that program to be intact, working, solvent, uh, responsive, and all that. So uh, you want to add to that? Well, I think there's another good reason to care about it, which is that if you're a, a working age person, you're paying for it. Exactly. Yes. So you're paying the fiscal premium part. now uh, for the Medicare Part A hospitalization benefit that you will then uh, enjoy from the time you turn 65 until the end of your life, um, or perhaps earlier if you have a, a disability. Um, and so you'll have that premium fully paid, and you certainly want to have the value. And, and what's good about uh, the Act is it does a number of things to strengthen the program and to actually make it last longer. Uh, one of the fundamental things that is going to save us uh, both money and promote health is the elimination of what's called coinsurance, or the amount that you pay, yes. and deductibles, the first dollar amount that you pay, yes. for a number of the preventive benefits that, that are covered under the program, things like tests and screenings and so on. And we'll go into more of those details. And I, I just noticed, again, another, you know, the um, the debate here, the public discourse, whether the Obama administration is cutting spending on Medicare. Let's let's first talk about the uh, how the Medicare Advantage program, it does save the Treasury money without actually cutting services um, uh, to seniors uh, by, you know, removing some of those wasteful subsidies to, uh, pri- the, to the private insurers. Well, the issue there is... Um in Medicare Advantage, people can choose 
to the extent that they have plans available that they like, to get their health benefits from a private carrier, and we pay a premium for that beneficiary, and in some cases they pay an additional premium themselves. Yes. And typically, these organizations, uh, you would know them down there as uh, United Healthcare, or used to be Pacific Care, um, organized Kaiser Permanente, and so forth. These organizations then take that premium, it's, it's capitated monthly premium, and then they provide all the Medicare services for you. And oftentimes they may enhance, provide some enhanced services as well. Well, the, the, the fact is that the formula under the law by which we calculate those premiums was, was faulty, and we're spending more than we need to spend. Uh, essentially, to, to simplify it, we're paying about 118% of what we ought to be paying, um, which would be something that's at parity with people that are in the fee-for-service program, or perhaps even a little bit less, since these organizations with a narrower network ought to be able to um, provide some additional value. And so what the law does is over a period of the next few years, it uh, brings parity to the two programs. But I would quickly add that over the last two years since the law has passed, the premiums that beneficiaries pay for those programs have gone down both years, and 10% more beneficiaries have joined the plans, and we have more plans in the program. So I think that there's plenty of resource available in the premiums going forward uh, for companies to provide value and for Medicare beneficiaries to enjoy uh, the choice of these different kinds of plans, many of which provide wonderful programs. Well, I have to admit how reassuring that is to hear uh, when we hear the clamoring for, um, you know, by the deficit, budget deficit hawks about uh, cutting spending. And this, this clarifies greatly for all of us, you know, the the shift share <laughs> of the, of public finance in, uh, in health care. This, this is very, very, very helpful. Well, another thing that is uh, really uh, important, I remember since the um, the Medicare revisions in 2003 with respect to the uh, prescription medications, this um, Affordable Health Care Act has gone a great distance to deal with that so-called donut hole. I know you know all about that, so you can explain us, because I, I thought, you know, at the complications that the the act in 2003 wrecked was sort of like an, an additional cognitive test for seniors who are already having enough difficulty managing uh healthcare institutions without trying to figure out how they're going to cover all of their medical prescription needs? Well, I, I think that the challenge uh, for folks was the benefit was not uh, very intuitive in terms of being the kind of insurance benefit that we're used to. Exactly. And at the root of it, there's a, a, you know, a basic benefit um, that you pay a premium and the program covers your prescription drugs up to a certain dollar amount and then you've used your benefit. Um, the problem is, well, and then at a much higher spending point, around $4,500, I think it is, then the program kicks in and you have a catastrophic benefit that pays 95% of your uh, drug expenses. Uh, the issue is between the initial benefit and the catastrophic benefit, there was a gap, and that came to be known as the donut hole. I'm not sure why. Um, and it was hard for people to understand, and they didn't understand why they had to continue to pay premiums even though they weren't receiving any more benefits. Um, and if you're an actuary or an insurance person, you would see that having the, the existence of that catastrophic benefit, which you may or may not reach, is still something of value, just like your automobile insurance and your fire insurance mm -hmm. are of value even if you don't have an automobile accident or a fire. So 
what the law did is it created in the first couple of years, first it gave people a rebate if they spent in that donut hole space. Then last year we introduced a 50% discount on the brand name drugs uh, for people in that space, which uh, saved about 320,000 people in California with Medicare, uh, a good deal of money, over $500 a person. Um, that uh, an annual savings? Year, excuse me? That was an annual savings? That's correct. Okay. Year, yeah. Um, and so there, there was also a, a discount on generic drugs, which is increasing this year. And when you, by the time you get to 2020, the law phases out the donut hole and the coverage uh, proceeds right, you know, continuously. Well, but I mean, you agree with me, though, that, that this, this was putting, I mean, admittedly, so many seniors are really hard pressed to sort out all of these kinds of details. They're, they're in a decline. And so asking them to sort out all this was uh, insult to injury in getting their needs being met, correct? Well, I would say that when the Congress creates uh, programs and laws of any kind, they're, they're in a position where competing demands have to be compromised and people have to be brought on board. And in order to get something that can pass, it's not always done in a way that makes it, you know, customer or user friendly. Awesome. And so in this case, I think that the goal of having a catastrophic benefit uh, that would help people who had something like, say, leukemia or, or cancer where they needed incredibly expensive drugs was a worthy goal. Uh, and the only way with the dollars that were available to meet that goal was uh, this, this structure. This is a compromise they came up with. And I, I certainly agree with you that it was difficult for people to grasp. We struggle with that. And it'll, life will be much easier when we don't have to deal with it anymore. Amen. If you've just joined us, listeners, my guest is David Sign, the Regional Administrator at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, including California there. He's uh, calling this interview in from San Francisco. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming to you live on the web uh, at KUCI.org. Well, can you lay out for us now um, the preventative services with no deductible or copay benefit here in California? Well, the, the important ones um, are those, those screenings for our Medicare population. Yes. And I'm talking about the colon cancer screening, breast cancer screening, um, prostate cancer screening, and so forth. Those are really critical, and they're, they're not inexpensive services by any stretch. Um, but you're also covered for uh, the influenza shot and uh, the pneumonia shot, for example, um, which is very important because the majority of Medicare beneficiaries who die usually die in a hospital with pneumonia, and it often started out with flu. So that's really important for people that are, are older. Um, and so you're also covered for a screening for uh, problems like alcoholism or depression, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's coverage to work with your provider to, to quit smoking if you have a problem with smoking. And there's even coverage now, uh, new under this law, for an annual wellness visit where you go to the doctor, you don't pay, and you don't have to pay anything for the visit, and you have a conversation about your history, your medical history, the risks that you face, uh, and have a plan for the coming year of how you're going to maintain your health, what screenings are appropriate for you, or should you make adjustments to your diet, and so forth. I think this is extremely powerful, and this is the model that we need to have around health, where the individual is at the center of the healthcare process, and they're the one that's maintaining and driving their health, because let's face it, it's the decisions we make every day 
about whether we wear a seatbelt and whether we smoke a cigarette or what we eat for dinner. That's whether the we pop in for life. how many bonbons we allow ourselves per day when we're feeling a little more reclusive as a senior or how what days may be cloudy or sunny we're in or we're out all righty i think we're back on david are you still there yes ma'am okay somehow we got uh we got unpatched and so i'm glad you're back again that was special um so i guess that's what it feels like when you don't have a uh the safety net in healthcare. When you don't have a safety net in uh <laughs> in radio you fall through the cracks and this is what uh, we're, we're trying to talk about how it's um we're talking today with dave sign uh, the uh, regional administrator at the centers for medicare and medicaid uh here at um kuci 88.9 fm in irvine and um, what we wanted to do is take up now. California has received about um, $40.4 million in grants, research, planning, information, technology development, and implementation of the Affordable Insurance Exchange. Can you elaborate on how that's working for us here in California? Well, um, we're really excited about that. And, and actually, uh, a lot of that flows not from the Affordable Care Act, but from the uh, the Recovery Act that was passed just before that, where oh. uh, there's a huge investment being made in helping uh, doctors and hospitals invest in electronic medical records, and then helping states and local communities invest in the resources to make it possible to share uh, health information across different uh, platforms and different institutions. There's a tremendous amount of waste uh, that goes with repetition of tests and, and medical procedures simply because a, a patient presents and their, their record isn't, isn't available because in the, in the present form, in a lot of cases, they're just not in a portable form. And one of the key things to getting the individual at the center of health care is empowering that individual and their family or caregivers with the information that you need to make decisions. Uh, my aunt, as a matter of fact, is in the hospital here in, in uh, Oakland, and we're kind of struggling to know what's going on with her. And uh, we're, in a, we're in a health plan where we do have this electronic stuff. And normally, when she goes to the doctor or something, my wife and I both get on our computers, and we're looking at her blood tests, and we're talking about it, and we get her on the phone, and we talk about it. But they don't have that yet for the hospital, and they don't call every day to tell us what's going on, and she doesn't know what to ask the doctor. And it's going to be great in the future when you'll be able to just dial that up on the computer. Oh, they just did her blood, and this is that and the other. And, you know, having information is, is really, really powerful. Modern-day practice of Medicaid medicine is very, very much information-driven. And though uh, we are always mindful that, the, that we want to make sure the information is judiciously distributed so that there's not any second-guessing with um, other, but I guess with Medicare, it's not, it's not the same as with uh, an uh, earlier stage, uh, a younger demographic that might be second-guessed with some of that lab work flying around. Well, I think that that's why it's expensive and that's why it has to be done correctly. Uh, other industries automated because they didn't have the barriers and challenges around the privacy and so forth right. um, that, that, that medicine does. And then on top of the privacy, there's the complexity. So how much money you have in the bank doesn't take that much data to reproduce. But when you start to talk about a CAT scan or something, it's pretty substantial. Well, when you were talking about, you know, efficiencies and um, 
and cutting waste and that kind of thing. I I do when I was preparing for this show, I had my uh, my trust, uh, my friendly trust folks, um, you know, bring to my mind that that big public policy elephant in the middle of the living room, or rather that is the treatment room, is Medicare fraud. You, I know you've addressed this many times over. Can you tell us what is how it's being addressed in the Affordable Health Care Act? Well, I can tell you that it's, it's, it's on people's minds now because you're hearing more about it because we're doing something about it. We've, uh, under the law, the sentencing guidelines are... Are stiffer, and there's more uh, money invested in investigators and prosecutors and so forth. Uh, such that last year we had the largest recovery ever, over four billion dollars. And one of the um, actions that we took, what they call it a takedown in law enforcement, was just in in one case they took down 115 people in nine different cities in the same day. So um, there's a great deal of activity in this area because we're finally getting, I think, the investment that we need to do something about it. The other thing that we're doing that I'm more excited about is something called predictive modeling, which is an investment that was made in the Small Business Jobs Act um, in uh, computer software similar to what credit card companies use that every time a, a claim appears, it gets put into a web and compared to all the many other claims and things that are going on in our systems, and they actually create these, these maps of where there are patterns of um, abuse, and they can sort of determine if a, if a claim might represent a problem of some kind if it needs to be developed. And this has a lot of uh, potential, and we're very excited about it. Um, and we've been doing that for about a year, and we've had pretty good success with it. So you're taking a number of different enactments to um, make Medicare much more efficient and responsive to patient needs and to um, cost savings over the whole national treasury. And hopefully less responsive to the needs of crooks. Right, right. Well, that, that predictive modeling, that's, it's good to um, know. And that was the, the Small Business Jobs Act. That, that yeah, came so from. I believe it was uh, something like $20 million was invested. Um, but the, the thing that's neat about this system is that it learns as it goes along. Exactly. Well, it um, sort of gets smarter. Good. Well, the same thing, but we're, we're, there's, I just want to talk a little bit. A few, we have a few more minutes, even though we got that little interruption there at the drop call. That, um, just a little bit more about some of those other savings uh, with the um, – for the uh, – that there's that there's not the savings so much as expenditures for more outreach that you're dealing with here for uh, Californians, uh, and the support for aging and disabilities resource centers. Um, maybe you could elaborate on that before we have to close the interview. Yeah, well, one of the things in the law that I neglected to mention on the on the broad side is doubling the investment in the programs we have called Senior Medicare Patrols, where we actually have uh, programs where volunteer seniors come and work with us to educate people about how to find fraud and so forth. Now, another great resource that we've invested in in California is the Health Insurance Counseling and Assistance Program, where we have uh, people on the ground in every county in the state who can provide one-to-one uh, guidance to uh, seniors or other people with Medicare about choosing health plans or dealing with problems they might have with their health plan or getting access to insurance. Uh, and those people are extremely helpful, and they, too, recruit volunteers to do this work. A lot of these people are retired attorneys and teachers, and they're bright 
We train them. Uh, it's remarkable how many years people stay in this program. As I go around and meet with some of the volunteers, I see the same faces all the time. They really enjoy the work. And so uh, it's really important for people with Medicare to know that there are lots of resources uh, to help them understand the program. There's our 1-800-MEDICARE operators 24 hours a day. We have a wonderful uh, Internet facility at Medicare.gov. And then uh, those 800 operators can put you in touch with somebody right in your community, and they often put on events at senior centers and so forth. And all, that inf- about Medicare. all that information, Dave Sina, is going to go on the podcast. So, um, well, um, well we can, you, you've mentioned them in brief here right now. Well, it sounds like your outreach is getting uh, a lot of um, a brain trust there to, uh, I mean, leverage to, to help seniors um, uh navigate these uh, healthcare uh, institutions so it's a uh, this is this is a remarkable is this new that you had these kinds of uh, individuals on this on the patrols no it's just that people don't know enough about it and we need to shout it out from the rooftops a little bit I, I have to say that I'm taking a particular pleasure in this Supreme Court controversy because yes it's- getting people to pay attention. Exactly. You're getting a lot of ink from that <clears throat> and yeah. uh, each day <clears throat> a slightly different kind of <clears throat> excuse me ink there well I'm sorry I'm um, coming out of the flu here uh, so what we're we'll close then with um, that the uh, yeah so for people to stay tuned listen to the debates there's plenty of excellent editorial coverage there's radio commentary there's of all stripes, but I, you know, you know where to go, folks, for for excellent radio commentary. And you can uh, also, you know, on the many websites with Medicare.gov, you can find out more, and uh, you'll see all of these programs. And for those of you who are interested and you want to join on, um, David Sign, if there is an an elder retiree who wants to become a part of the patrols, do they? How do they cut through a, an extensive phone menu and find out how they can uh, volunteer to help you? Um, I, I just think the easiest thing would be that if you, if you call 1-800-MEDICARE people and you uh, click through, try to get yourself to an operator, um, and there's a way to do that, I'm sure, um, they'll, <laughs> they'll put you in touch with the resources in your community. Okay, so because we sure want to make it easy for them because we, we yeah. need to, uh, if they're interested, we want to give them every, uh, every easy uh, way of, of participating. Well, I thank you so much, David Sion, for talking to us about Medicare. And we didn't really get to much of the Medicaid benefits, but it's it sort of in, subsumed in some of these um, benefits. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, these under the Patient Protection Affordable Health Care Act of 20. And um, we, um, and, and I hope. Uh, and that, as we said, we're, I hope you enjoy watching this nail-biting continuation. And as you said, too, uh, the sort of literacy-providing uh, form of uh, the Supreme Court hearing of the... Uh, it's now it's called Health and Human Services versus Florida. I finally I finally heard that. I hadn't. It had not been ad- addressed as that until yesterday. I don't know. Hmm. So. Yeah, exactly. So I was wondering what we were going to be calling that, because like Citizens United, that's what we call that that uh, ruling. So anyway, I want to thank you, Dave, for being on the show today. And if you are interested, we can talk again on this program in the summer once the ruling has come out from the Supreme Court. That's great. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. That was Dave Sion, as I said, the uh, administrator for Medicare in the Western states, including California. And... Uh, We'll uh, put all of those information, um, uh, contact information points uh, on the web and uh, with the podcast here. So after a brief station break, we'll roll out the newest book by Professor Kristen Monroe 
of the poli-sci department here at UCI. The book is entitled Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide, Identity and Moral Choice, Where Genocide and Altruism Collide in Her Case, Histories that she so beautifully presents in her book. So stay tuned in an age of terror and genocide. We'll talk about that in just a bit. second portion of the show. My guest is Kristen Renwick Monroe, professor of political science and philosophy at the University of California at Irvine here, where she's the founder and director of the UCI Interdisciplinary Center for the Scientific Study of Ethics and Morality and the associate director of the program in political psychology. Her path-breaking work has changed the field of political psychology, political economy, and normative public political theory, that is. Her award-winning work on altruism and moral choice deals with a central problem in politics and ethics, our treatment of others. We had two of her students on this program, on the show a year ago, presenting their research on how moral values guided their subjects through some harrowing dilemmas. It is my distinct pleasure to have Kristen, their mentor, speak with us about her work, to which, which has culminated in her latest book, Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide, Identity and Moral Choice. She comes to us from Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kristen Monroe. Thank you. I'm glad that you're on today, and I must say, I'm not going to be the first to say it either. It's very compelling reading, and uh, remarkable how a political scientist, as I alluded to in your introduction, is putting together so many disciplines for an for such a meaningful understanding in what the heck happened in the last century. Thank you. Well, in your work, you talk about the rescuer the bystander, and the, you call it the tacit or the enthusiastic supporter, um, you are talking to us about how the psychological and cognitive basis now uh, form this social identity theory. Can you elaborate on what you see as the social identity theory that can explain our reaction as individuals toward others in such a catastrophe as the Holocaust? Social identity theory itself was actually developed by a man named Armi Tashfel, who was a Polish uh, Jew who left Poland to study in France and got caught there as World War II began. He went through the war as a French soldier, was captured by the Germans who did not realize he was Jewish. After the war, he went back to Poland and found that everybody he knew basically had been killed during the Holocaust. So he was trying to figure out why this happened. And the theory that he came up with um, is very famous in social psychology, called social identity theory. 
He started it when he was a psychologist working at uh, Bristol. It's called the Bristol School of Social Psychology. And it basically suggests that groups are formed not necessarily by by interest, which is, I think, what the common assumption is, that we have certain things that we like doing, so I like playing water polo, you like playing volleyball, and my interest in water polo will lead me to someone next door who plays water polo, whereas I wouldn't be that interested in playing volleyball with you. What Tajwell found, in contrast to this, is that groups can be artificially created and that then people will... will, um, there's a kind of in-group, out-group phenomenon which is very relevant. So that very. one of the things that is, is so critical about social identity theory is that it, it has a very solid rooting in what is very powerful assumptions about the human personality. And that is that we need to define ourselves in relation to other people. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that as we grow up, we think about, you know, you're a member of a family and then you you go through your adolescence and you begin thinking about who you are and you know, well, you're, I'm not going to be my mother, I'm not going to be my father, I'm not going to be like them. And so you kind of form your identity in contradistinction to some of the people around you. And <clears throat> Tajfell argues that this happens at a group level too, that what happens is that we need to feel good about ourselves and so that we make members of our group good and make people who are against us bad. And so this was very much what went on during uh, the Holocaust in World War II and what I think is, uh, lies at the root of a lot of prejudice in other situations, the idea that there's a, an in-group and that people who are in the in-group um, are, are better than people who are out of the in-group. And so this has a kind of um, normative aspect because simply forming a group will mean that you will treat people differently so that the people who are in your group will be treated better than the people who are out of your group. And I found there was, uh, Tashville did this in thousands of experiments in different cultures and age groups and, and types of people. And he would go around and assign people just arbitrary um, groups so that you could be, sometimes he would show people um, a Rorschach or he would you know, just assign them something so that you can say, and I've done this in class with students, you go around and you're an A, you're a B, you're a C, you're an A, you're a B, and a C. So the students have nothing more in common than just where they happen to be sitting, and they're assigned to certain groups, and then you offer them two options. One option is that everybody in group A will get uh, $5, everybody in B will get $10, everybody in C, group C will get $15. And option number two is that everybody in group A will lose $5, everybody in group B will lose $10, everybody in group C will lose $15. And I've done this with, you know, points on an exam or something like that. And as you would expect, then most people in group A will take option number one because they're getting $5. Um, but about a third of the people consistently over time, regardless of how you vary it, tend to uh, take option number two, which makes no sense if you think of it in material gains because they're losing money, but they are losing less than everybody else so that their group is doing better than the other groups. And I think that's a very interesting finding, so that there's a kind of need to feel that your group is better than other people. So I used some of that theory to try to look at how people uh, viewed each other, uh, viewed themselves in relation to other people. When I started doing my work on altruism, which began with studies of people who were entrepreneurs as kind of baseline people who do not engage in altruistic activity, they behave as most of... Um, the kind of basic assumption underlying 
a lot of disciplines from economics to evolutionary biology is that people will try to do what's best for their own self-interest as they perceive it, uh, subject to information and opportunity costs. And um, altruism doesn't fit that, so it's an interesting um, insight into a basic theory if you look at what doesn't fit, and that can tell you something about the limitations of the theory. So then I interviewed philanthropists, people who got the Carnegie Hero um, Commission Award for jumping into lakes and saving people who are drowning or running into burning buildings, things like that. And uh, the last group I looked at were people who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. So what I found was that the traditional explanations of human behavior in a wide variety of fields simply didn't explain altruism. So I had to kind of develop my own theory. And what I found was that people who are altruists, and the closer you get to the kind of more altruistic end of the continuum, altruists tend to have a different way of seeing things. So that whereas you and I would see a stranger, an altruist just sees a fellow human being. And so because they see themselves as people who are related to other people through bonds of a common humanity, they don't, they don't treat strangers differently than they would treat anyone else. So that's how the cognitive overrides that psychological sort of uh, you know, um, aspect that, well, you're, that you're talking about. I don't it's separate key. the cognitive from the psychological. I think that the uh, psychology is really what's going on here that's critical. And then as I got more interested in um, the, I did the, you know, the first book on altruism, um, and I found that the psychological component was more important than the economic or some of the other things mm-hmm. that went on. Then I wanted to understand, well, what is going on with this psychology? And so I looked more closely at the rescuers, and I found that um, it was very much a kind of uh, perception of yourselves in relation yes. to other people. And um, so then I tried to understand whether or not this, what I call the altruistic perspective, is something that is... Uh, part of what everyone has, so that does everybody have a certain kind of ethical perspective? And if they do, then how does that differ for people? What causes the differences? So that was when I got interested in the last uh, book project, and I interviewed a rescuer, and I I took his cousin. He introduced me to his cousin. Yes, let's talk about that book. That's really the central part, I think, of the interview. I wanted to make sure. And so let's, you, you were talking, yes, the, the rescuer, his cousin, was, uh, is, fits the bystander kind of motif. She and, did, and she was interesting because she had been raised by Tony's parents after her mother Tony died. being the rescuer, Tony folks. Tony is the rescuer, so he's her cousin. I, may, um, I looked at Dutch people because I think it's too easy to... Um, take a route where, well, it's just German culture that caused us the Holocaust. And, of course, there were lots of other people who cooperated in the Holocaust. And anti-Semitism, unfortunately, is a very light sleeper and has very deep roots. Um, but I think it's also um, typical of the process that goes on where you have prejudice of any kind, so that there was a lot of prejudice against the Slavs. We have different racial, ethnic, religious prejudices in this country. I mean, all kinds of prejudice. So I, I wanted it to separate it from the German aspect of it. So I looked only at, uh, mostly at Dutch people. And in the book, what I did was I used five case studies, and they are, um, but I did do a lot of other interviews with different people. So I did roughly 100 interviews over a time period, and then some of them were informal, some of them were off the record. Um, did a lot of formal interviews where I videotaped our um, just 
audio tape the interview itself, and then I would transcribe it, send it to the person to look at it, and make sure there were no corrections and things, and then I would analyze it. So the sample that I actually presented in the book, Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide, begins with Tony as a rescuer, and I have a long interview with him about why he did what he did. Then I have his cousin, who is a bystander, and I liked having a cousin because, of course, some of the familial uh, background characteristics were very close then. The third person I interviewed was a man named Fritz, who was a, a propagandist for the Nazi. He was a journalist, and he worked for um, a magazine called The Storm Dove, and he traveled throughout Europe. It was basically a propaganda. And he was a very strong supporter of um, the war because and National Socialism because he wanted to restore Holland's glory. And it was interesting when we did the interview, he said he thought maybe that the Germans would help Holland get back some of its colonies. And I said, you mean like South Africa? And he said, no, New Amsterdam. And I thought, oh, oh yeah. boy, we're going back a long way here. Yeah, here's I Manhattan, think, folks. <laughs> I think there are a few people living in New Amsterdam who might not be too too happy about becoming Dutch again. Uh, but that was really what he wanted to go back to, the glory days of, of um, Holland. And um, then a fourth person I interviewed was a man who uh, was German, but he was such an interesting person. I included him because his background was so similar to Tony's. They were both uh, rather wealthy when they grew up, um, only children. Um, and he was interesting because he was a soldier for the Nazis. He did not, I did not ask him if he was a Nazi. He never told me, but he, he clearly had some um, racist overtones in his discussion, mostly of the Slavs. Um, and then the last person I interviewed was a woman named Florentine, uh, and I can use her real name. These are mostly pseudonyms, um, except for Tony and uh, Florentine, who was married to um, top Dutch Nazi. Her brother was head of the SS for Holland. Um, her husband was kind of the combination of head of the Federal Reserve Board and um, Treasury Secretary. So he was he was a top person. She herself had been involved in Nazi activities for a long time and had been head of the Hitler Youth for Women in Holland until she got married, and then she started having children. And after the war, she uh, and her husband were offered the opportunity to get out of, they were going to put him in a U-boat and take them to Argentina, but they said they were idealists and wanted to stay and tell the truth about what happened. And she's totally in denial about the Holocaust. It was The war was caused when, according to her, when um, the English invaded Holland, and Hitler asked very politely three times, please stop doing this, and then only the third time when the British kept bombing Holland did he go in. And then, you know, she said things like the concentration camps were <clears throat> where the Jews were put, and they had better food than the good German peasants who were starving, and that the blood was put in afterwards by the, not, by the Allies, and, and just totally in denial of everything. So she must very, have been reading some very special sources to be able to have that <clears throat> thought. I mean, it, if it wasn't really happening, she was uh, she had... Spe- Un- unbelievably saturated propaganda that, you know, made it her yes. life's commentary. Yes, and it was very interesting to include those people. Doing an interview with a Nazi is not, not exactly the most pleasant thing to do, but you have to really suspend judgment um, on it in order to try to understand it. What I found was that there were very distinct differences, um, so that everybody, I think, has an innate predisposition to morality. So I think that there, wow. just as we have an innate predisposition for language, 
our mathematical ability. Now, your ability in math is probably much better than mine, I hope. Um, <laughs> oh, let's not go there. <clears throat> but let's go here. One, one thing, we, let's go here. My guest in this part of the show, if you've just joined us, is Professor Kristen Monroe, UCI uh, poli-sci professor, who's recently uh, released her latest book called Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide, Identity and Moral Choice. And she's talking about her several, her central case studies in the book, um, talking uh, about, um, now we're talking about the um, Florentine, who's um, the, your, um, your, your cookbook uh, sort of fascist uh, Dutch person. And I, I want to go back back up just a little bit that that really is a good point that you decided to look at a Dutch case study so that you're not in the heart of, of a German national movement, but you're in a Western European other country that has still this these fascist um, sorts of fascist reactions and anti-reactions. That's right. So we're, got, we're talking about Florentine now. Mm-hmm. One of the things I found is that um, there were a lot of differences in, ter- in certain critical variables, so that the way in which they saw the view, the world was different. The way in which they saw themselves was different. So that Tony, for example, saw himself, as most of the rescuers did, as people who were what philosophers would call high in agency. That if you think about what makes things happen in the world, um, it's human beings. And so Tony felt that you always have room to do something. There's some little thing that you can do. You can open a door, you take someone in, you give them food. Um, There's always something you can do. Beatrix saw herself as very helpless. She saw herself as a person who didn't matter. She was reminded me very much of a kind of Nora in Ibsen's um, work, where she'd gone straight from her father's house, who had told her how to live her life in the general contours of things, so much so that when her mother was dying, she was asked, told by her father to take a book to the mother in the hospital, but not to go in and see the mother. And the nurse came out and said, your mother would like to see you. And she said, no, I'm not allowed to see her. Oh, and she had repeated entreaties and, to, to go and do that. And she remembered her said, father's directions. Yeah, your nurse said, your mother is dying. She wants to see you. And she said, no, I wasn't, I'm not allowed to do that. And then she went to her husband's house. And it was very much the same thing. She was um, very much the contours of her life were shaped by the people around her. She did not feel she had much ability to do things. And it was interesting because one of the questions or responses that intrigued me when I would ask people what they did during the Holocaust, and I was just speaking informally with some people who were what you call bystanders. I think I had a student whose uh, parents, grandparents were German when I came, came over, and I first noticed it then. And I that when you'd ask people why they rescued Jews, why they risked their lives and those of their children and families to save strangers, they'd say things, they'd look at me kind of confused and almost bewildered and say, well, what else could I do? They were human beings like you and me. And then when I asked bystanders the same thing, they would say, well, what could I, what could I do? I was one person alone against the Nazis. And what was very interesting to me was that there was no choice perceived in either person. Um, and very different perceptions of themselves in relation to other people. That the phrases were so similar, but what else could I do? I was, they were human beings like you and me, but what could I do? I was one person alone against the Nazis. And both people were absolutely right uh, in their perceptions. So that Beatrice didn't see herself as someone who could make a difference. They had constructed a hiding place, for example, in their home. They had a huge home in Utah. Mm-hmm. 
and her husband was a doctor, so they had an office downstairs and then an upstairs and then an attic, and they built the attic to hide him in case he needed to be hidden, and they never used it. And I asked her, with right. Tony's wife sitting there filming the interview, 50 years after the war, did you ever use it for him? And she looked at me kind of confused, well, who would I have used it for? And I said, well, you know, your cousin who was in hiding um, the entire war because he was condemned to death early in the war, um, and um, maybe Jewish people. And she just looked, she said, oh, no, there really wasn't anything I could do. And well, she was also concerned about the help would be uh, would inform or something like that. That was very interesting because um, the... Another difference that you found with people was what I called canonical expectations and a kind of implicit cognitive model about what it means to be a human being and what it means to have the good life. And so when I asked um, Beatrix what her life had been like, she said, I've always had a very good life. I've been very spoiled. I've had lots of leisure time to play squash and tennis, and my husband had to work hard, but I had lots of leisure time because we had help in the house. And I noticed it at the interview because she used the word helps. We did the interviews in English because I'm not fluent in all these languages, and most of the people I spoke with were pretty fluent in English. And um, she said, I had helps in the house so that I had the time to do things. And then later in the interview when I asked her why she didn't do anything to hide Jews, she said, well, there really wasn't anything I could do because most of the people were gone or they were, you know, someplace else. And besides, we had help in the house, and so there were too many people around. So I thought it was very interesting that what it meant to her to have a good life was what I think a lot of us would think of, was to have the leisure time to enjoy yourself. And in her case, she wanted to play squash and tennis, um, and that was provided her by the help, and then help meant that she could not help anybody else because they would possibly turn her in. Now, of course, there were many rescuers who worked with their help, you know, their servants, to yes. um, hide people. And um, But I thought it was very interesting that what it meant to her to have a good life was so powerful that it meant she couldn't do other things. Whereas the rescuers, when I'd ask them, what does it mean to be a human being, what is the goal in life, they always would say the goal of life is to be happy and one is being happy. It's not having money and material things. It's helping other people. It's having other people in your life. And so their their concept of what it meant to be a human being and what the good life was about, the goal of life, was quite different from um, Beatrix. And so you would see subtle differences on critical variables such as how you saw yourself. So the rescuers, for example, saw themselves as people who always had the opportunity to do something. Uh, They were high on agency. The bystanders saw themselves as helpless people who were kind of pushed around by events so that um, Kurt, the the German I interviewed in the book, uh, talked about not wanting to get involved in the war, but there was nothing he could do about it because the state was too powerful and this was history and it was history repeating itself. And he had to be in the military because everybody in his family had been in the military. And he said when they went into the eastern part that that was the Slavs' land and they shouldn't have gone in there, and then it ended badly. Um, And I thought that was very interesting, too. And then the Nazi actually saw themselves as people who were under siege. They saw themselves as victims. They had to protect themselves against these vermin who were infecting the good German body politic. And the way they viewed Jews are Slavs or um, Roma, gypsies, um, homosexuals, any number of of other categories, was as people who were being attacked by 
uh, what you and I would think of as, you know, cockroaches invading our house. And they didn't think anything about killing the cockroaches in the same way that you or I wouldn't think about mm. killing a cockroach. Yes. They're not a, you know, little baby yes. cockroach wasn't any different than a big cockroach. Oh, I, 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 I refuse to end the time that is no longer remaining in this half an hour that went by so fast, but I, I must, um, I, I, I want to wrap with, um, there's, the the book will likely still there's a handsome supply of uh, Kristen Monroe's Ethics in an Age of Terror and Genocide Identity and Moral Choice um, at the the University Bookstore and I'm sure on Amazon mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's pub it's the published by the Princeton um, Press and um, I let me just close on this before George Rosales has his hat in the show following me is um, I I wonder Kristen at short of a full catastrophe like the Holocaust, and we're going to give you just one last minute to, and we're going to run over because George isn't here yet, folks, so so bear with us, that um, short this kind of a catastrophe or, or one that happened in Rwanda that continues in Darfur, are we not daily faced with the choice of how to deal with and treat other individuals? Increasingly, Kristen, aren't we? We're drawn, we draw on our uh, the work with troubleshooters in, in uh, phone calls where we don't even know where they are. We see people in places, uh, we can't see them, but we uh, dial them up. Uh, we take positions about their uh, people's places of worship. We take a cons- we take issue with whether they're wearing a hood at nighttime. Somebody took a shot. Um, then we, we have our own social identity theory with which to contend in less catastrophic times um, and I, I, I want to leave people with thinking about that. It's not just sort of that discrete moment in history where that happened. It's ongoing, is it not, Kristen Monroe? I think that we actually tend to operate out of our sense of who we are. I think our character is very important. I think it sets a menu of choices that we can choose from. Yes. Um, and if something isn't on our menu, we're not going to behave in a certain way. So that I think the moral... If you, if you want to understand moral choice, I think you have to understand people's character and how yes. they see each other in relation to other people. Well, thank you very much for setting aside valuable time on your spring break today. And uh, we'll, uh, if there, there is more research, uh, uh, more of your students who are interested in, in um, op- continuing this forum, it'll be much appreciated. Thank you for your valuable time today. And thank all the best with you. your uh, reception on this uh, publication. Thank you very much. Well, I'm so glad we got a chance to hear from her. Uh, I'm going to close out this show because it's uh, George Rosales coming up next. I, I don't know where he is yet, but we'll hope he shows. Um, the uh, views of this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI, its management, or the UC California Board of Regents. Stay tuned. As I said, for George Rosales had a hat, and we'll... Um, See you next week with more topical programming. Listen up, listeners. Mm-hmm.